columnist in the Boston Globe. He's a fellow at the Humanities Center at Harvard and a, a writer in residence at Suffolk uh, University in Boston. So I'd just like to say as well that I first met Mr. Carroll at a series of international conferences which were occurring in Europe, in the Middle East, and North America on anti-Semitism. I met him in Montreal with some colleagues. And when we met there, um, and I'm sure you'll see here today, he is uh, an intellectual of the highest standards. And I think in a sense he, he challenges us to think and to reflect critically, which is challenging. And at the same time, I think he tries and succeeds in trying to bring out the best of our humanity. So it's a great honor to have you here uh, as our first one for you. Everybody, please turn your cell phones on. Thank you very much, Charles. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you. And I'm honored to be here with you this afternoon and determined to make good use of our time together. I'm going to speak for 35 minutes or so and hope that we can engage in a conversation about some of the questions that are before us. I uh, honor your earnest, serious attention to this great question and I'm hoping to be worthy of it. Before I speak, however, I want to say something. <laughs> I want to say something about this journey that I've been on. It's three roads uh, that need a little explaining. I've been on The Journey of Constantine Sword, a book that was published just before 9-11. And right after 9-11, the meaning of this long look at the history of Christian anti-Semitism took on different color as religious intolerance became the ground of a new and dangerous condition in the world. And the relationship of the old and uh, unfortunately powerful tradition of Christian anti-Semitism suddenly looked different in the context of a new and inflamed belligerent Islamic fanaticism and the place of Jews in the world post-Holocaust in the time of Israel in the time of Jewish thriving in the United States of America also looked different and every one of our lives has been different so I've been on this journey that has three roads and only one of them is this long history of Christian anti-Semitism. And I'm going to track through that road with you this afternoon. But the two others I want to acknowledge. One, I've been traveling and paying attention over the last more than a year to events at the United States Air Force Academy, where a, a religious zealotry marked by a determined proselytism has, in an unexpected way in the United States and in the United States military singled out for particular attention Jewish cadets. Why is that? And what does it mean? And when I ask that question, I immediately have to pay attention to the other road that I'm on. So three roads, anti-Semitism down through the centuries, this contemporary story of religious zealotry confronting the unbelieving other. 
which is of course an echo of this other paradigmatic history of religious zealotry confronting the unbelieving other. And then because of the accident, the coincidence really, that it's the United States Air Force Academy, I've also been on a road of my own life story, which because of the peculiar accidents of my life story, turns out to be quite relevant to this long history. My father, an Air Force general, my own being brought of a uh, come of age in an Air Force family, closely attuned to the stresses of the Cold War, my life choice to enter the seminary and become a Catholic priest determined by what I would call nuclear dread when I was a young man in 1960, 61, 62. The Cuban Missile Crisis, some of you are old enough to remember the dread attached to that particular accident to my life story. My father was the person who discovered, as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the marks on the ground in photographs of Cuba that showed the Soviet missile sites. And it was out of the determination to, as I put it to my dad, work for the things that last, that I embraced my vocation as a Catholic priest. But oddly enough, that journey brings me through the reckonings of the 1960s, especially around the Second Vatican Council and the powerful event that took place there, to which I'll return. But also in the 1960s, a broad Catholic reckoning with the failure of the church during the Holocaust. You recall the play the deputy, the controversies around that. And then the witness of Pope John himself, who put the church's relationship to the Jewish people firmly in the center of the Second Vatican Council. And then my ordination to the priesthood, my being conscripted into the anti-war movement during Vietnam, which in an odd way turns out to have been a kind of holy war with a particularly Catholic aspect to it, which I discovered to my real horror, really, so that it felt natural that I was then conscripted into the Catholic peace movement and then begin to question the whole way in which we as human beings have made our peace with the idea of war. So, the church's war against the Jews, a new religious war that threatens the future, and my own trekking through this life in which religion and war have been totally intertwined. You would think already that this is a set of roads on which somebody's going to get lost. How in the world do you keep these three separate tracks straight? Well, you don't. They actually twist and turn. But they do, in the end, as I've discovered in this work, amount to one road, uh, leading ultimately to the conclusion that no war is holy. So, let me tell you about being in Arlington National Cemetery with my son not long ago. My mom and dad are buried there. We go there to pay tribute to them. We come up over a hill not far from the Tomb of the Unknown. And what do I see on the crest of that hill? But a huge cross. The cross is sacred to me. I have a cross on my desk. 
The cross is a sign of God's mercy in my life. I love the cross. And yet this day, I looked at the cross on the highest hill of Arlington, a war memorial, and it is a sword. Embedded in the cross is a huge sword. And I recognized it. And this is the biggest and most painful question of my life. How did the cross become a sword? And what, what has it done? So the story begins back there with the cross. Jesus dies in the year 30, and the story of the death of Jesus is written down between 70 and, and 100. And you know what happened. You know it. I don't have to tell you. After the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, two small groups of Jews begin to vie with each other for dominance in the Jewish movement. Rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism of the rabbis. What is it to be a Jew without the temple? One answer, Torah-centered Judaism. Another answer, Jesus-centered Judaism. And these two groups begin to have a rivalry, rivalry with each other. And it might have remained only that, a religious rivalry. It might have even unfolded within Judaism. But then something totally unexpected happened, and it's embedded in the Gospels. And that is that one group accused the other group of a cosmic crime accused this other group of murdering the Messiah, who soon enough understood to be the Son of God, accused this other group, that is, of deicide. And that charge set in motion something unexpectedly and uh, historically lethal. Even so, through those first couple of centuries of Christian development, the rivalry between Jews and Christians in the Roman Empire might have remained more or less that. They were more or less equal groups in the Roman Empire. But then, again, something unexpected happened in this story. You know this. The pagan emperor became a Christian. And he became a Christian around an idea of and an image of the cross. You remember the story. Constantine sees the cross in the sky the night before the battle. And under it, the legend, in hoc signo vinces, under this sign you will conquer. Hey, I heard this story as a little kid from my dad. Not, incidentally, a general officer for whom Constantine the general was a very appealing character. And Constantine goes into battle the next day having instructed his soldiers to, literally he does this, instructed them to reshape their spears into the form of a cross. And they go into battle behind this emblem, and they're victorious, and on the strength of that victory, he becomes a Christian. No, more to the point, the empire becomes the church. The empire which murdered the Jew, Jesus, and against which Jesus stood as a resisting Jew, who understood the Roman occupation of the Holy Land as a blasphemy, that empire has now become the Church of Jesus Christ. Around the image of the cross. Oddly, and you know this, or perhaps you don't, most Christians don't know this, in the 270 years before Constantine, the cross had not been a Christian symbol. 
You don't find it on the walls of the catacombs. You find the fish, the loaf of bread, the, uh, the cup. You don't find the cross. The cross comes into the Christian imagination powerfully now. And Constantine dispatches the story, says, his mother, Helena, to go to the Holy Land to discover the true cross. My mother's favorite saint. My dad was, my dad was partial to Constantine. My mother was partial to Helena. Uh, we won't get into the Oedipal complications <laughs> since Helena wasn't his wife. Helena was his mother. Actually, there's parenthesis, a story there. Constantine is regarded as a saint of the church, especially in the Eastern Church. He murdered his son Crispus in the year that he took over control of the empire. In the year he dispatched his mother to find the cross. And he murdered his wife Fausta, which is why Helena became the regent of the empire. Why? It's a mystery. But, is it an accident, I wonder, that a man who has murdered his own son brings into emphatic central Christian understanding and belief a God who centrally requires the death of his own son so that now the death becomes dominant over the resurrection as the motif of Christian belief. Once the cross is a sword in this way, and I'm talking literally because now for the first time in Christian history, uh, violence is justified as a way of spreading the gospel. And if you don't accept the orthodoxy of Christian belief, before Constantine there are multiple forms of Christian belief, including some that were centered around the synagogue and around Jewish observance. All of that multiplicity disappears now. One central orthodox Christian faith that is central to the political unity of the empire, enabling Constantine to take control of the vast world from England in the far north to the shores of Egypt in the far south, from Spain in the west to uh, Israel in the east. And this theological orthodoxy centered around the symbol of the cross comes into the center of Christian imagination. And something else has been set in motion. The Christ killer motif takes on new power when the cross is made central. The more important the cross is, the more in jeopardy Jews become. The church fathers begin to define Christian belief against the Jews, adversos judeos. St. Augustine defines the wandering of the Jewish people, always in exile, as a proof of Christian claims, theologically rooted. So that something new starts to, be, starts to happen here. It culminates, it shows itself clearly uh, hundreds of years later in the First Crusade. Remember what the word crusade means. It's translated in Arabic, War of the Cross. When President Bush inadvertently used the word crusade to define the war on terrorism throughout the Arab world, that word was translated War of the Cross. Men, mostly men, wearing crosses on their breasts and on their shields, sent off by a pope to reconquer the Holy Land from the Muslim infidel for the first time in history in Europe, 
launch pogroms against Jews. The movement against an enemy outside required some perverse way and movement against the enemy inside. You know this story. It's the spring of 1096. Up and down the Rhine River, the most thriving Jewish settlements and centers in Europe, Mainz, Cologne, Koblenz, Worms, Trier, and in town and town after town, crusader mobs come to find the Jews and to give them the choice of conversion or death. The conversion of Jews becomes a millennial agenda, and there's a kind of hysteria about it. And something basic is set in motion in Western civilization. This is the ground of what we call Western civilization, after all. And never mind that in Iberia, in this very period, a precious coexistence, Jews, Muslims, and Christians living together under the sponsorship of Islamic caliphates, which, of course, give us, give Latin, the Latin West access to the great philosophies of, of the Greek and classic world, which lead them to further development. The Catholic Church, thank God, renounced violent conversionism, the, the violent movement against Jews, and popes began to defend Jews against mobs, but without ever <coughs> tackling the central question, where was the behavior of the mobs coming from? And it was coming from that central embedded charge, the deicide charge. You've heard this a million times. You think you understand it. None of us understands to this day how central this Christ-killer charge has been and remains to the Christian imagination, and how lethal it has been and can be again to Jews. And the Crusaders, it became their cry. The Pope said God's, God wills it, and the Crusaders cried, Christ-killer. And in the filming of Constantine Soy, the documentary, we visited the ancient Jewish cemetery in Mainz and found stones dated to the 11th and 12th centuries. Jews who were murdered or who were <coughs> pressured to suicide by crusaders. And I had a moving interview with Cardinal Karl Lehmann, the Archbishop of Mainz, in the courtyard of his cathedral, in the very place where hundreds of Jews were murdered by crusader mobs, despite the bishop's attempt to protect them as if it were yesterday. I said the church renounced the impulse to convert by violence, but in doing so, it reaffirmed in a new way, after the Crusades, the impulse to convert. Ironically, those Greek ideas, Aristotle, that, were, that led to a new flowering of rational theology in the Middle Ages, were taken to be a new source of argument against Jews. St. Thomas Aquinas, our greatest theologian, composed one of his great works, the summary of the argument against the Gentiles, by which he meant the Jews. And here are the reasons why we can convince Jews now, based on philosophy, since they for a thousand years rejected our arguments based on scripture, why we can convince them now which generated a whole new kind of conversionism. St. Thomas was a Dominican. 
the Dominicans and the Franciscans were commissioned to preach based on this new apologetic, rational argument. You will listen now and you will hear the truth. And a new idea comes in. When Jews reject this truth now, they're doing it out of bad will. Not ignorance, as you saw in St. Paul, as St. Paul said, bad will. Which begins to feed a new fervor and a new hatred, a new level of hatred against Jews. Which is, of course, reflected then in the 12th and 13th century as the pressures to convert are intensified, especially in Iberia. And in the 13th century in Iberia, coming into the 14th century, you, if you're Jewish, you lose your property if you don't convert. You lose your place of residence if you don't convert. You lose your office if you don't convert. The convivencia, the coexistence of Iberia, comes under pressure and jeopardy. And more and more Jews do convert. Sort of. They convert, and perhaps in all sincerity adopt some aspect of Christian faith, but they maintain a loyalty to Jewish observance. But they have to do it increasingly in secret. And suddenly conversion spawns conversos. And what's a converso? A converso is someone whose conversion can't be trusted. Hello, you can't Hello? You can't trust a coerced conversion. You would think they would have known that. <laughs> you can't trust a coerced conversion. That little turn in the story brings a whole new level of lethality here. Because what happens? Even if you're baptized now, you are a suspect if you're Jewish. Baptism used to entirely change who you were. You became one of the children of God again, one of the elect again, but no longer. Something new comes into the discussion called Jewish blood, the impediment of Jewish blood. And if you are born Jewish, or if you're the son or daughter of someone who was born Jewish, and eventually the great-granddaughter, the daughter or son to the fifth and sixth generation of someone born Jewish, you can't be trusted. Well, the culture needs an institution in which to investigate those who cannot be trusted. And of course, this is the coming of the Inquisition. 1472 or so in Spain. Everyone knows the story. Do we really appreciate why this is such a turning point in Western civilization? Because it's here that the old Christian tradition of religious anti-Judaism, the argument against Jewish religion, turns into something new, which is racial anti-Semitism. Whatever your religious identity is, it doesn't matter if you have Jewish blood. And this is a minority view. It's an exception. It's heresy. It's a repudiation of the oldest Christian idea, which is that baptism brings you into a whole new life with God. And this rejects that idea. Nevertheless, inquisitors sponsor it. Popes resist it. Indeed, popes are defending Jews in this period. Thank God. And in 1492, everyone knows, Jews are banished from Iberia, expelled. Guess where they were welcomed? The Papal States. Pope Alexander VI 
It says Jews can come here. Rejecting this notion of Jewish blood. Yes, still harboring a hope for Jewish conversion, but not pressing it. Jews can live here, in this place. And so, beginning then, in the early, late 15th and early 16th century, you have this contest between the inquisitors and the popes. And it goes through the whole first half of the 16th century. An inquisitor, a pope, and arguing over the place of Jews. Until 1555, another one of those turns in the story. When the Inquisitor, one of the most savage of them, Giancarlo Carafa, who said, if my mother were a heretic, I would sponsor her being, her burning. Carafa is himself elected to the papacy and becomes the Pope. And the first thing he does is affirm the principle of blood impurity. Born Jewish, you cannot hold office in the Catholic Church, even if you're a priest. Son, grandson, great-grandson of a Jew, you cannot be a Jesuit. A rule that's in the Jesuit books until the 20th century. That's not all Karafa does. Even more momentously for my story, for the story I'm tracking, he establishes the ghetto at the foot of Vatican Hill, effectively imprisoning the Jews of Rome who've been there for thousands of years, and saying, from now on, Jews live here. And that, in some way, some awful way, is the first of the great low points of this story. <coughs> Cardinal Edward Cassidy, formerly a leader of the Vatican interreligious dialogue, was the one who said that the Roman ghetto was the antechamber for the Holocaust. Well, you know the story. There's, of course, in reaction to the extreme oppression of Jews that takes place now. Let me put in parenthesis, of course. I'm recounting a Christian's reckoning with this dark history. I am not telling the story, the glorious story, of how Jews coped with this and the triumphs of Jewish life, nevertheless, that marked Jewish life through this whole history, including the triumphs of life in the ghetto. <coughs> and in this period, close parenthesis. But that level of oppression, of course, was part of what then led to the impulse for emancipation, which was part of the ground of what came to be called the Enlightenment itself, partly tied to the savage religious wars among Christians, but also to the demonstration by Christians of their contempt, Protestant and Catholic. Something newly lethal becomes centered in Germany with Lutheran anti-Semitism, which will bear its own dark flower. But it's in reaction to this that we have the emancipation, and ultimately the Enlightenment itself. And in the United States of America, the precious response to all of this, which is centrally embodied in the simple idea of the separation of church and state, which is an undoing of what Constantine did, removing power, political and military power, from religion. Which is why the story at the Air Force Academy has resonance here. Is the separation of church and state somehow in jeopardy in the United States? It is not a trivial question. 
especially when it's involved not only with political power, but with military power, in the context of a war that wants to define itself religiously. And if Christian, Catholic and Protestant, fundamentalism begins in a new, fresh way to define the West, what will that do in relationship to Islamic fundamentalism? How, in other words, do we defuse Islamic fundamentalist extremism as opposed to playing into it, exacerbating it, making it worse? Let me just quickly draw this summary of this long history, which I know you know very well, uh, to a close, uh, staying with that neighborhood in Rome. Because, you know, this whole story from the Christian side is always told as a story of Jewish venality and Christian virtue. There were always Christians who knew how horrendous these things were. You see their witness again and again, but they're always a minority and they're almost never in power. And there is this terrible period in the 19th century when the liberation of the Jewish people which is part of the revolutionary period of Europe, becomes a symbol of the most threatening thing yet to confront the Catholic Church, which is why through the 19th century, and now I'm speaking as a Catholic, the Catholic Church turned its face against modernity and defined all that threatened it again and again by the Jew. Which is why every time through the revolutionary periods of that century, again and again, revolutionaries liberated the ghetto in Rome as the first symbol that this old order had to change. And when the revolutions failed, as they did repeatedly in the 19th century, the papacy reestablished the ghetto as the symbol of the restoration of that order. Until finally in 1870, the last ghetto in Europe is in Rome. The papal city. It's a disgrace to have to admit that as a Catholic. And in 1870, when the revolutionaries take the city away from the Pope, the ghetto is freed once and for all, they thought. Because, of course, it's only decades later, only decades later, that the regime of the ghetto is reimposed once more. With the fascist laws of the 1930s, imitating the Nazi laws in Germany. And the great shame I confront, of course, is I'm, I'm a man who was born uh, when my grandfather was still alive, and he was alive when all of those discriminatory regulations and laws against Jews that came to mark the fascist system in Italy when my grandfather was alive, those same laws and regulations were being imposed by the church. So, how can we be surprised that there was so little offense taken at the fate of the Jews? The glories of historic support for Jews and resistance to fascism and Nazism must always be emphasized, of course but they must always be emphasized in the Christian conscience as exceptional, which is the challenge to our conscience. Well, you know the story, and, and the, the ultimate instance 
a church failure, in my view, took place in October of 1943, when in that very neighborhood, the Pope's Jews, the Jews who had come to Rome under the sponsorship of the Pope, to be protected by the Pope, and then who were effectively imprisoned for centuries by the Pope, the Pope's Jews, the Nazis came into that neighborhood in October of 1943 and rounded them up. The silence of the Pope is then over and over and over treated. But as long as there is any resistance in the Catholic world at all to reckoning with its meaning, it must be continually insisted upon, too. And the silence that month is the silence that resonates. What the Pope said or didn't say about what happened in Poland is another question. And there are debates. We don't know because the archives aren't open. What exactly was known, etc. We know exactly what was known in the days and evenings and nights of October 1943. And I've had the privilege of talking to people who were there. And they told me. As one of them said, if only he had done what he did when the city was bombed, saying nothing. But when the city was bombed, he went there and just stood there and he put his arms out in the form of the cross and stood there where the bombing had taken place, the Allied bombing, by the way. If only he had done that, this man said to me, the roundup would not have succeeded. This man, by the way, was in hiding until the spring, months later. And he explained all that time they were waiting for a word from the Pope. <coughs> Never came, and they were finally arrested when the family dared to gather together to celebrate the Paschal meal, the Passover meal. And they were broken in upon and arrested, and he lost all of his the Holocaust, the Holocaust, the Holocaust. No, we must not get over it. No, we must not leave it behind. We Christians, <coughs> because the Holocaust is the epiphany. Yes, it was the Nazis who did it. And yes, there was a neo-pagan aspect to Nazi hatred of Jews. But it was centrally and always tied to this long Christian tradition. Pope Benedict has begun to speak as the German Pope about these things in ways that suggest a will to deflect, a will to refuse to reckon, and he must not be permitted to do it without challenge. And Pope Benedict must be called to the standard of the Second Vatican Council. A word about that in my conclusion now. I, as a boy, had the privilege of meeting Pope John XXIII. My life changed because of it. I felt touched by God because of it. I didn't understand how that could be or why. And it was only years later that I understood what was important about him. He was one of the few Catholic prelates to actively resist the Holocaust, providing baptismal certificates to hundreds, perhaps thousands of fleeing Jews in Turkey. And when he became Pope, and call the Second Vatican Council, he required the bishops of the council to take up the question of the church's relationship to the Jews. You can hear the conservatives say, take up, what's to take up? But he knew, and he forced the issue. And in 1965, that led to Nostra Tate. The great turn, finally, in this story, 
Nostra Aetate did two things of significance. It went right to the heart of this problem, what I began with. No to the Christ-killer charge. That must never be said again. And no to conversionism. The covenant God has made with Israel is full and complete and permanent. Without explaining how this touches on traditional Christian theology about the necessity of Jesus for salvation, the Vatican Council affirmed the covenant as the authentic connection to God for the Jewish people. Since then, the Christian world, the Catholic Church in particular, despite efforts to fulfill this beginning, have been ambivalent and even in resistance to this change. And that's the question that remains for us Christians. Two questions I am left with after this history. One, will we Christians fully and firmly and finally root out the Christ-killer charge? Well, actually, not until we change the way we relate to our scriptures. Because that's where it's embedded. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have it. And that challenge to our Christian basic belief and sense of ourselves is hugely problematic. How do we do this? We have to do it. Second, we Christians must fully and firmly renounce conversionism, the impulse to proselytize with the Jewish people in particular. And I would argue we have to embrace a much fuller sense of pluralism honoring the religious impulses of other people, which leads to my second large conclusion. This old habit of denigrating the other is so embedded in Western civilization that we are in danger now of being at its mercy in relationship to the world of Islam. Yes, the most ferocious and dangerous anti-Semites in the world are now Arab Muslims. But that shouldn't deflect us from two basic facts. Number one, anti-Semitism is most lethally rooted in the Christian tradition, not the Muslim tradition. And Christians aren't finished with it. And number two, this tradition of contempt for the other ill prepares us to deal with the clash of civilizations. And we are in danger of stumbling in to a religious war, in danger, that is, of accepting Osama bin Laden's invitation. And that's especially true in an America, which is uncritical of itself in its own relationship to power and in its own assumptions, which I believe are quasi-religious assumptions about America's status as the chosen nation. And in a more particular way, the upsurge of Christian fundamentalism, whether it's Protestant or Catholic, that defines other people's faiths as inferior and holds them in contempt, is especially dangerous now. Especially dangerous now. Let me just conclude by telling you a quick story. When I was a kid, I uh, lived in Wiesbaden, Germany, because my dad was in the Air Force. And it was the, 1959 or 60, and I was one of a group of boys that loved sports car racing. And there was a big race, the Grand Prix in Berlin. Berlin was the isolated city inside of communist East Germany. And it was a flashpoint 
And therefore, it was essentially off-limits to people like us. But there was an army, U.S. Army train from Frankfurt to Berlin every day. And we waggled our way onto that. I think there were four of us. We took over a compartment. It was fabulous. What an adventure. And we couldn't wait to get to the Iron Curtain. Because we knew that that's where the confrontation would be. You know? And before we got to that point, the MP came through the train. And he gave us instructions, explained that the four-party treaty involved certain regulations, and the Soviets were always looking for an excuse to violate the treaty. The regulations had to be enforced to a, to a T. And the regulations included, close the shade on the window and don't open it, and by no means do you take any photographs. He left. We're sitting there, the train pulls into Helmstead, as I recall, or near it. The engine is shut off, it's dark. We hear the barked orders outside, each German's talking German, another language, oh God, Russians. It's like the soundtrack without being able to see the movie. <laughs> suddenly, I don't even know which one of us did it, but the, the, the shade came up an inch. And the next thing I know, I've got my camera, and I've got my, the lens of my camera at the lower shade, and I press, and it feels like even before I press the thing, the door burst open, and in comes this huge American military policeman. Grabs me, throws me up against the bench, grabs the camera, in a flash the camera's open, the film is all over the compartment. I think, whoa, this guy is really bad. And then I saw what he was doing, because right behind him, with machine guns, were an East German Volkspolizei and a Russian soldier. They were there to enforce the regulation. And the MP was showing them that he was enforcing it. And his roughness to us was part of that. And they finally withdrew. And then he wrote us up. And when he looked at my ID card, he saw that my father was a general. And he looked at that, and it, he decided, he chose not to write me up. <laughs> he, he, just, he said to me, at this altitude, my nose bleeds. <laughs> he wanted to have his name on a report that was going to go to a general. But then, as he left, he turned to me, and he put his finger right in my face, and he said, some damn fool like you is going to start World War III. <coughs> Two things. I still feel the burden of that. I'm ashamed of what I did. I understand how foolish we are. And I've thought of this story repeatedly in recent days and months as I watched the foolishness of my own government. Not World War III, but a war in its own way every bit as threatening for the rest of the century. How unnecessary, how foolish. But also, this whole history, good-willed Christians, people who are only trying to do the will of God, Foolishly, stupidly, callously, horribly, scapegoating Jews, doing murderous things to them, leading to the worst crime in history. I don't sit in judgment on people who did that. I think we all are responsible for the world. This is my Christian attempt to reckon with this history. I believe, actually, that every human person, every group, every religion must do their own version of reckoning like this. 
even while I say almost no other group has reckoning to do like Christianity. But I wouldn't want to leave you thinking that I feel morally superior to my own tradition. And I wouldn't want to leave you thinking I've invited you, wherever you are in this story, to feel, leave here feeling morally superior to it either. Because finally, moral superiority has been involved. This is a history I've learned from, and I come from a country that has certain relationships with Islam, and I've lived here 40 years and loved it, and I have some religious background. But more importantly, it seems to me, the issue now is sociological, it is behavioral, it is money, it is economics, it is also the exploitation. And that has been done well by the colonial powers. And unfortunately, it's been perpetuated by a non-colonial power, as it was once. It seems to me that that's the, still the big issue we have to deal with in terms of not of anti-Semitism, but wanting much bigger anti-Islamism. And I'm worried that because we're focusing on a very instructive story on this thing, and a very learned one, that we're kind of really behind all this is Islam in your thoughts. And we've hardly touched it. Well, I, I'm, I welcome your observation. It gives me a chance to insist with you that anti-Islamism is the issue, but it isn't a separate issue from anti-Semitism. And the Crusades are the great lesson here, because it was the war against Islam that was the occasion for Europe's first violent assault against Jews, which is one of the reasons why there's a fresh manifestation of anti-Semitism in the present climate. It is a, it, the war against the enemy outside spawns the war against the enemy inside. And the readiness of people in America to central, to make central our problem in the, in the world with policies of Israel is an example of this. There's much to criticize in Israel's uh, pragmatic choices about war and peace over the last two generations. But I would say that the readiness to hold Israel to a different standard and the readiness to insist on Israel as the central problem for the clash of civilizations is another signal to be concerned about. You can't, in other words, in my view, separate authentic concern to oppose anti-Islamism and authentic concern to oppose anti-Semitism. They, they are two sides of a coin, in my view. And I, I welcome your response. I, I'm at some risk of discussing this with you. We've studied it for a long time. But I'm more concerned to hear something about the fact that we are not living up to the very criteria that the more sane and there are many Islamic people would expect of us. I, listen, I agree with you. Let me give well, you an example that's of this. Really, that's well, all I want to say. Well, I agree with you, and that's what I said. I said, Christian fundamentalism especially, Catholic or Protestant, 
exploits, invites, exacerbates, uh, puts us more at the mercy than ever of Islamic fundamentalism. It It does. It ignites reactions that I think are understandable and predictable. When Pope Benedict says that, quoting a uh, medieval source, says that everything that came from Muhammad is evil. Uh, and of course what Pope Benedict is doing here is affirming the central Christian character of Europe. That's behind what he's, what he's doing. His argument is about Europe. And his argument against Islam as the irrational religion as opposed to Christianity, which is the rational religion. Christians are rational, therefore we don't have to proselytize by violence. We can make the case for our beliefs nonviolently. That's the advantage of Christianity over Islam, which is by definition violent. This is, the, this is an inch below the surface of what the Pope said. That, is a, that expression of contempt for the tradition and history of Islam is, gives a religious underpinning to the callow and mistaken uh, reference of President Bush uh, identifying the war on terror as a crusade. So I, I completely assert, uh, agree with what you're saying. What I'm insisting against, and this is actually, it's hard to insist on this because the conversation about anti-Semitism has been, has been so corrupted in the last few years. If you're concerned about anti-Semitism, you must hate Palestinians. Or if you if you are not, if you're indifferent to anti-Semitism, you're indifferent to Israel. It's it's those that that breakdown of concern is deadly right now. We have to insist that religious triumphalist fundamentalism of whatever stripe is the problem, and we must check it. Someone else. Yes, Can I just interrupt for a second. Um, in this Q&A, if you wouldn't mind for waiting for our camera to come to you before you ask the question, until they come back to you to give your answer. So it'll slow things down a bit, but I think it'll give everyone a chance still to do their, their thing on camera. And we're also going to pass out some questions, not that you don't all have good questions of your own, but if anybody has a chance and wants to ask some of these, we'd love to get your, your version of these. Okay. So we're going to pass and, and thanks for your patience with this process. Yes, ma'am. I would like to make a comment and the vice president. My first comment is that in 1947, two years after the gates of Auschwitz were opened, I was prepared in Cologne uh, for first communion. And I still remember, as it happened yesterday, that the parish priest who was preparing us for this sacrament referred to the Jews as those stubborn, stiff-necked Jews who had refused to recognize Jesus as the Savior. And in retrospect, at the time I didn't even know who was a Jew, to me they were I was seven years old, there were some ancient people like the Phoenicians, because there were no Jews in Germany. The second the question I would like to raise is that the Navitite Carmel Mustiger is commonly referred to as the Jewish with Cardinal Mustiger. Now, you're either Jewish or you're Catholic. Why is this Cardinal, now retired, still referred to as a Jewish? It reminds me very much of once a Jew, always a Jew, and Jewish blood, etc., etc.
you're, you're telling us that the priest in 1947 in Cologne referred to the stiff-necked Jews is stubborn and stiff-necked Jews is, is such a poignant reminder of a problem that's still pervasive. Very few people would be so uncivil as to say stubborn and stiff-necked Jews. But throughout the Christian world, we are still at the mercy of a narrative, a story, that portrays the stubborn and the stiff-necked Jews. And we do hear that language, that uncivil language, in our most sacred text. Which is why, and, and the, the reason, the poignancy of 1947 Cologne is what you're, what you're reminding us of, not even the Holocaust uprooted this. And it isn't uprooted yet. Which is why, of course, the Holocaust must always be remembered. But um, say a word about the second observation you made. Just remind me. About, uh, oh, Cardinal Lucigate, yes. Well, well, you know, the Jewish Cardinal of Paris. Yes, it's, you remind us, I mean, this is how embedded our thinking is. Uh, he's born Jewish. You all remember that Cardinal Lucigate was one of the hidden children who was, whose parents were executed at Auschwitz, and uh, who was raised a Catholic, and became a Catholic priest, and is now the retired Archbishop of Paris. And uh, his story is a poignant reminder of this very problem. During the Holocaust, the Church did speak up in behalf of Jews, baptized Jews, because the Church had, thank God, let go of that racist claim that once you were baptized, it didn't change anything. So the church is now affirming that baptism does make you a full member of the community. But the church was indifferent, essentially, with some exceptions, some few exceptions, indifferent to the fate of Jews who were authentic and complete and permanent Jews. Which is why it was problematic for some people when the church named Edith Stein a saint. Why was she being honored for being the right kind of Jew? who had converted. After all, the Nazis killed her in Auschwitz, as they would have killed Lustige if they'd gotten him, uh, for being Jewish. By the Nazi standard, Lustige remains Jewish. We know that. Edith Stein, the story of Edith Stein is one of the most poignant and painful stories here, that she should be a point of conflict between Christians and Jews, because she herself would have had nothing to do with that her own earnest attempt to find a spiritual meaning, not repudiating Judaism, repudiating her secular atheism, because she didn't actually understand her own Jewish roots as a source of, of rich spirituality. So she came into Christianity and discovered it there, and then as a Carmelite nun. But one of the most moving things I experienced in this journey that I've had with Lauren Jacoby is that we went to the convent where she lived in Cologne, and we met a nun who was there when she was there. And she gave me a copy of the letter that Einstein wrote to Pope Pius XI in 1933, within weeks of the Nazi boycott of Jewish businesses on April 1st. And it was a firm demand even, not request, demand, that the Pope speak out against what she called the extermination of the Jewish people. And the letter was never answered. And later, closer to the time when she died, 
1942, as she was fleeing Germany after Kristallnacht, she wrote in her diary, I wonder, some version of this, I wonder if my letter ever comes to the Pope's mind now, after all that I predicted has come step by step to be true. Yes, sir. I've written a copy of this book about a diatribe by Sean O'Malley, the Archbishop of Boston, who had a diatribe against you. Yes. Does it clarify why he stubbornly indicted you? Uh, if it's the indictment I'm thinking of, <laughs> it, it had to do with my uh, uh, criticisms of Pope Pius XII. And I believe, if it's, I, I remember uh, Archbishop O'Malley, now Cardinal O'Malley, published a firm rebuttal defending Pope Pius XII. If, if he still believes that, this is a few years ago, Cardinal O'Malley and I simply disagree. And I do not believe that Pius XII was a war criminal. I don't believe he was worse than other leaders. Churchill and Roosevelt could have brought Jews into Britain and America and didn't. Uh, not even the minimal quota of Jewish immigrants was being met during the early years of the Holocaust in the United States. That's a disgrace. Pius XII was typical of the leadership of Europe and the West. He shouldn't be singled out for special censure, in my view. My simple point is, as long as there is a movement in the Vatican to make him a saint, I feel obliged to continue the criticism. Because even though he was no war criminal, he was no saint. <laughs> and that's the simple point. He was, a, he was a Catholic who did the best he could do as, he, as it was given to him to see it. And I meant what I said before. I do not sit in judgment on him or any of the other bystanders or even perpetrators. I pray to God I would not have been a perpetrator. I recognize the bystanders. Knowing what they knew, believing what they believed, would I have behaved differently? I hope so, but I can't claim it. it the point of doing history isn't to sit in judgment on the past from a position of moral superiority. It's to understand what human beings did in their circumstance so that we will recognize those circumstances when they're presented to us. That's the point. Yes, ma'am. And then I'll come over to this side. Yes, for me, the most striking takeaway from your talk is the challenge to moral superiority, which I really appreciate as a, as a Catholic. And my question is, and, and it's a genuine concern, which is, since moral superiority, superiority has a component of distancing our, ourselves, is there a danger when we talk about fundamentalism in any religion that we would internalize that sense of superiority to those people, that we would distance ourselves from those people and somehow they would become demonized, even where we can hold beliefs that are different, how do we genuinely not make those people the problem? Mm -hmm. I'm glad, actually, to have a challenge to my challenge to moral superiority, <laughs> because, because I want to be able to distinguish between what I'm arguing against and what I want to argue for. I'm against 
putting people down as human beings. Every human being is worthy of respect. And every religious tradition is worthy of being understood on its own terms. So yes, fundamentalists, we don't want to denigrate fundamentalists either. But that is not to say that life in the real world doesn't require argument against fundamentalist principles. Because the Christ killer myth, to stay with that example, is lethal. People have died because of it. And if you believe the Jews were the murderers of God, I'm going to argue with you with every breath in my body. Even while I hope not denigrating you as a human being. Therefore, evangelical Christians I honor. I share their faith in Jesus. Evangelical Christian fundamentalism, fundamentalists who go into the United States Air Force Academy and single out Jews for special proselytizing, I will argue against them in every way I can. I will point to them and say it's wrong, and I will remind them where such impulses have led in the past. So it is a delicate balance. Can we both be respectful, respectful of those who disagree with us? Here's the enlightenment question, pluralism. Here's the enlightenment question. Can we affirm tolerance even to the point of tolerating those who are intolerant? And the answer in the enlightenment is yes, we can. Intolerant as long as they're not violent. Freedom of speech in the United States. They don't have this in other countries. So, but that doesn't, but that, but we do believe in this country in the power of speech and the power of argument and the power of writing and the power of doing history. Why did so many Christians go to Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, and see it as only an occasion of spiritual uplift? Because they don't have the historical knowledge or the critical uh, understanding of scripture. They don't have the uh, equipment to think critically about what Gibson has put on the screen. They're at the mercy of it. And my job, as someone who has uh, the vocation of the writer, is to put in the public sphere those moments of history and those uh, facts about the scriptures that will enable people to think critically. If you understood where that portrait of the Jew led in history, exactly that one, you would not be uplifted by it. Yes, you want to just rebut yeah, or yeah. come back? Well, there's a, there's a piece. I'm glad to hear your response. I share a recognition of the, of the humanity of the response. My follow-up is, because there's always an element of distancing ourselves from those people we disagree with, and certainly this is something I experience considerably as a female in the Catholic Church, but what I've learned is there's something significant about developing relationships with people we disagree with so that the distancing doesn't become moral superiority and most significantly that we understand the journey that makes people arrive where they arrive. So that whether it's slavery or anti-Semitism or whatever it is, I think there's something that we need to understand about fundamentalist Christians that is, is not component of intolerant of intolerant of intolerance, but at the same time we bring some sense of a history to 
these people and their positions along with the respect. I don't know them, but if I could dream, I would think about you being in some evangelical Christian setting, giving this talk on the basis of how you would talk to them, not only from an argument of history, but John James Carroll, the human being talking to people. Yes, ma'am. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, as a Jewish lay chaplain, you know, I do have a lot of chance to be with Christians um, at times of need. But I think that more importantly, it's important for Christians, like you were just saying, uh, uh, like yourself, speaking to evangelical Christians, because they'll hear it from you. That you are one of them, versus a Jew saying you're being anti-Semitic. They don't. It doesn't come from the same root. And unfortunately, you, even though your book might be wonderful, I don't think you get the same play that Mel Gibson's movie. <laughs> <laughs> and so the question becomes: How do you reach the general public who are willing to go see Mel Gibson and don't have the information to be critical of? Well, I confess the thing that grieves me the most is how we, let's say Catholics, have failed since the great breakthrough of Pope John XXIII and the great breakthrough of Nostra Aetate. Unbelievable that the Catholic Church should renounce this basic tenet of the faith. It grieves me how much we have failed to really implement that change. Most Catholics have never heard of Nostra Aetate. I suspect more Jews know about it than Catholics. And that is a grievous failure. And the popularity of the Gibson film and the lack of popular criticism of it is a signal of that. And I will confess something to you. This is very personal to me. I was a Catholic priest. I came of age with John XXIII. I was a Vatican II priest. I was trained in it. I'm passionate about it. I was in a position of Catholic leadership. I'm not anymore. I'm a Catholic. I'm a loyal and faithful, I'd also say practicing Catholic, getting better, you know. <laughs> but I'm not a position, in a position of leadership. If I had stayed in the priesthood, Maybe I would be. I'm not being grandiose here, but tens of thousands of us, Vatican II Catholics, left the priesthood and left the convent. Men and women, tens of thousands. And we got it about that change. And one of the problems we had immediately was with authority that wasn't getting it. And the odd, the odd irony is that <coughs> Vatican II gave us the freedom to claim our identities in conscience as Catholic lay people, which is what I've done. I look back now, though, and I recognize that I am part of why the Church has failed to implement and make permanent the revolution of the Council. And every time I see a signal that the Council is being rolled back or forgotten, I feel a little guilty. 
Yes, sir. Uh, Two-part question. Just following on that first part, it, it almost sounds like you're saying that we need a little rewriting of the New Testament there, the first four chapters, or at least an annotated footnote. Is that what you're suggesting? And then the second part is, in your conversation about fundamentalism and Christian fundamentalism, you sort of draw moral equivalence almost between Islamic fundamentalism and Christian fundamentalism. But that may be true up until a point. But the point we're at now, that's not true. And can you just address that? Let me take the second point. They're both incredibly important questions. How in the world can I even seem to draw a moral equivalence between Islamic religious violence that includes suicide bombing, the, uh, the uh, implementation of suicide as a mode of warfare? How can I even seem to imply any kind of equivalence with that? I don't want to. I think that the nihilist grip of the, of the death wish on whole sections of uh, Arab Islam is a terrifying and terrible development. And there are many ways to understand it, many ways to account for it. Only some of them are religious. Some of them are about colonialism. Some of them are about oil. Some of them are about the legacy of uh, terrible oppression from the West, etc. Nevertheless, Renouncing that and, and comparing it to nothing, it's important, I agree with you. Having said that though, uh, and also I would say, I don't draw moral equivalence between Christian evangelical proselytizing at the academy and the vigorous and violent conversionism that led to the Inquisition. I'm not drawing moral equivalence here. But I, I suggest that it's important for us to recognize the common impulses that lie beneath the surface of these things. Aware, for one thing, for example, as a Christian, that we as Christians have in the past been guilty of our version of this very thing we see in Islam now. Crusaders were, crusaders were suicide bombers of their time. And, and we, we Christians can't treat that as if it's Ivanhoe, which is how we remembered it. And the reason it's important to remember it is not to wallow in guilt about it, but to understand that this impulse is part of who we are. When Pope Benedict last week spoke about Islam and characterized it at a certain moment in the Middle Ages, he made no reference to the, and, and claimed for Christianity rational, nonviolent uh, essence. He, he made no reference to what was going on at that very period. That's when the Crusades were at their worst. They were not only attacking Muslims and Jews, they were attacking Christian heretics in the 14th century. So that's what I'm arguing against. You give me an opportunity to, to say there is no moral equivalence, but that doesn't mean there aren't moral lessons to be drawn from each of these phenomena. And we all have to be responsible for what we're responsible for. And I do believe that self-criticism belongs to every group. It must be. Without drawing moral equivalence there. There is no equivalent among Muslims or Jews to the Holocaust. No equivalent. And Christians share the responsibility for the Holocaust with the Nazis, many of whom were Christians. And that's a very basic <coughs> position that we have to stand on.
the more you raise the question of what do we do about these scriptures that have the lethal anti-Jewish slander embedded. And that question I don't have the answer to. I don't think we should censor these texts uh, because that's a form of historical denial. I don't think that we should pretend that there wasn't a moment when the sacred canon was being assembled uh, and, and reorder the canon. Let's find some gospels that are a little kinder and gentler. Let's find a Jesus who isn't in such a bad mood most of the time. You know, I don't, I don't believe in that. At, at minimum, I would say, we have, we, and this is where I go back to acknowledging my failure as part of the Vatican II generation that didn't deliver. We have to learn to preach these texts against themselves. Why is that important? Because the church in its first generation was already committing a grave sin, which is the antidote to the lie of church perfection. Why do Catholics have a problem reckoning with Pius XII? Because they're trying to protect the idea of a kind of infallible protection, at least for the papacy. And yet, in the gospel texts themselves, the Christians not only are showing themselves hatefully in conflict with Jews, but their failures are part of the story. The first pope, after all, in the Catholic memory was St. Peter, who was with Judas in betraying Jesus. And the whole story of St. Peter is about his regular capacity to fail the Lord. And we Catholics would do well to reclaim that Peter as the mythical first pope. Other comments or questions? behind you, too. You have behind Okay, I'll come to you next. Okay, I, I caught this lady's eye. Um, yes, ma'am. I don't have a problem with Christian scriptures. I think it's, it's the way that Christians look at it. Uh, you started your talk by um, talking about the theological point that Jesus came, was sent to earth in order to be sacrificed. Yes. So there's no way he could have died a natural death. So one could consider whoever killed him as carrying out God's plan. Um, now, it's easier and has more of a ring to it to yell Christ than to yell, I'm killing you because you don't believe what I believe. But I think that the second slogan is really the reason that the Jews were hunted down and killed over the centuries. Because you could say, well, thank, I mean, thank goodness they carried out God's plan. I mean, if you thought it was the Jews and not the Romans or whoever, whoever did, carried out God's plan. But we hate you because you're not Christian. So why do you uh, say that it was that the deicide that... Um, um, made uh, Jews so hated. I, I think it's, yes. it's that they wouldn't believe. Right. Well, you make me want to return to the idea of the cross. Why is the cross so central to us in our Christian imagination? Why that is, do we believe in a God who requires the brutal death of his beloved son as a way of saving the world? I don't believe in that God. That theology, which is traditional in Christianity. It was given its firmest expression by St. Anselm in what he published in 1098, Cordeus Homo, Why Did God Become a Man? 
And his answer is very explicit, to be sacrificed as a way of atoning for the sin of human beings against God who Anselm, in a medieval scheme, thought was the Lord, like the Lord of the manor. And that sacrificial atonement theology dominates the Christian imagination. And you see it uh, at the end, to the nth degree in the Mel Gibson film. I don't believe in that God. That is not the God of the New Testament. That is a post-Constantine, post-Crusade God. The God of the New Testament, Jesus' God, is the one who, Jesus says, God is like, well, he's like a father who has two sons. One of them goes out and squanders everything and blows the family fortune and disgraces the family, and the other one is a good son. And the story Jesus tells us to make the point, God loves them both. God doesn't need to be atoned. God doesn't need the son to come back and suffer. In fact, when the guy has blown through his fortune and is, is penniless and decides to come home in the story Jesus told, this story is famously called the prodigal son. It should be called the prodigal father, prodigal being, overflowing. The prodigal father. God loves everybody just by virtue of having created them. God doesn't need you to believe in Jesus. And if you do, God doesn't need you to have suffered like Jesus did. That's the story we have from the mouth of Jesus. And that's the antidote to this brutal, bloody, sadistic, awful atonement theology that portrays a God who is a crusader God. It's not an accident, in other words, that this theology comes just when the crusades come. Yes, ma'am, back here. Um, I'm up a question from sheet. What, this is the story of all of us. Uh, what have you confronted in your own set of beliefs and something about yourself as you've moved along this journey and as you've come to be who you are today, speaking in front of all of us? That was on the sheet. tell you, uh, those, those three roads I told you about, right? Christian anti-Semitism, the long history going back to the Gospels, coming through the Holocaust to Nostra Aetate. The story of religious zealots at the Air Force Academy in the context of a war that wants to be religious. And then my own story of my dad and mom in the military coming of age through the Cold War and the War in Vietnam. I'd have to say all three of them come to the same place for me, which is, put most simply, that no war is holy. No war is holy. And when the Pope in 1096 said, God wills it, that's wrong. I think that the most important political moment of my life was when I Pope addressed the United Nations in 1965. And I recognized something new about myself. I was still at the mercy of my father's Air Force. But the war in Vietnam had begun in earnest in March. Operation Rolling Thunder, the savage bombing of Vietnam. My Air Force. I already got it. Quickly. What's this for? What is this about? And in October, Paul VI came to the United Nations and he spoke to the representatives of the world. And does anyone remember what he said? Jamais plus la guerre. 
Jamais plus la guerre. No more war. War. Never again. He was talking about Vietnam. But he wasn't just talking about Vietnam. He was talking about World War II. He was talking about the Holocaust. He was talking about all that they had been through. And that simple affirmation is the answer to 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. Don't kill anybody. And if you have an argument with somebody, make it with words. Be a person of conviction and articulate your convictions. But it's also the story of kind of religious triumphalism in America. How we have the ability as a people to go into war thinking we're doing it somehow differently than other people. That when we do it, there's a kind of purity that doesn't need to be second-guessed. And we're living now with the tragedy of that mistake. And in my own story, I, I, I can tell you that my father, actually haunted by the prospect of nuclear war, for which he was responsible <coughs> to prepare, did say to me once, Jimmy, you know, if human beings don't find a new way to resolve their conflicts with each other, we won't survive the century. Well, we did survive the century, but the problem is still there. We won't survive this one. When I was a boy, I thought religion was the opposite of war. And that's why I went into the priesthood. And I learned with my generation that it wasn't necessarily so. And now I find that religion is not only not the opposite of war, but it's a, a kind of sponsor of war, which is terrifying to me. Look, I left the priesthood, which was a painful decision, but it was also a great liberation. I used to tell my friends, they'd say, why did you leave? I said, three reasons. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. <laughs> but I wasn't, I was half kidding. But when I left the priesthood, I always thought, this is the end of my time where religion will be central to me. I will just be another mass-attending Catholic. I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to write novels. I'm going to write journalism. I'm going to do other stuff. And here it is, more than 30 years later, 35 years later, and religion is at the center of my life. As a public figure, as a writer, as a citizen, how did that happen? How did that happen? I'm aware that the time is rushing by. I'll ask you to speak and then, was there anyone else who's been trying to speak? And then, yes, ma'am. If you don't believe we can get rid of the lethal parts of the New Testament, uh, how do you think we can get rid of the Jewish myth conceptions that exist? And say more about that. What do you mean? I'm not sure what you mean. Well, when I, I remember going to bike church and ski church um, when I was a youth hostler and hearing all these horrible things about Jews uh, promulgated from the New Testament. And you say, you don't believe in erasing these parts of the New Testament. And how do you, do you have any uh, suggestion on how we get rid of the Jewish MYTH conceptions yes. that persist? Yes. These texts remain a judgment on us. It isn't, it's easy for me to say we simply must find a way to argue against them. But in truth, I understand that very few 
ministers and preachers and priests do that. And very few Christians know what's wrong with these problematic texts. And that's something about which I feel terribly conflicted. I'm committed myself to the tradition. I don't believe in a kind of crass way that God ordained these books. But I do believe in a, in a way that's, I think, true to the biblical tradition, that God has ordained these people. We are of the people Israel, we Christians. And we accept the holiness of the book, which I want to protect. But every aspect of that book, and by now I mean the Christian Testament and the Jewish Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, are full of problematical texts. Ask slaves, or ask women. Well, a lot of you don't actually have to ask women. <laughs> you know, the problematical texts of Scriptures are rampant. How do we live with them? How do I asked Elaine Pagels, the wonderful scripture scholar, this very question, and you know what she said? We live with them the way we live with the dark side of our lives as Americans. Do we deny that we used the atomic bomb in Hiroshima? Can we reckon with the fact that it was unnecessary? Or do we have to go on with this self-deception that we had to use it to end the war? Historians are almost unanimous now. The Japanese would have surrendered promptly without it. I'm sure people here disagree with me about that. But that's another example. Can we confront the dark side of America? It's our problem as citizens. It's equivalent to my problem as a believing Christian. Can I live with and work to change the dark side of my Christian tradition, even including my sacred most, beloved most texts, the Gospels I love? It's the version of the thing I began with. I love the cross. I love the cross. And how do I live with the fact that it's been turned into a sword? Yes, sir. When, uh, when I hear you speak and I read some of your writings, I'm reminded actually of Manuel Levinas' work and sort of the relationship to the other and the ethics surrounding our relationship to the other. And it's inspiring and it's a, it's a difficult journey. So in that light of, of the other and the history of diocide and the history of spreading the gospel, the history of conversion within the church, and especially, I guess, with the, with the New Testament and the New Covenant, in a sense, that Christianity represents, is the existence of the Jewish people, not only a foreign in the sight of Christianity, but threatens to negate the, the Christian narrative. And how, and if that's so, how, how do you resolve that? And it's really, well, first of all, let me say I've been compared to Emmanuel Levinas, which is a deep honor, although I now understand why I don't understand myself. <laughs> You know, the, in a way, the most horrible thing about the Holocaust is that it worked. Jews were wiped out in Europe. There are a few enclaves uh, and, and recovered communities of Jews in Europe, but 
basically, Jews are gone. They live in the United States, you live in the United States, and you live in Israel. This legacy isn't finished because look what that means. It means that Jews went from the fire, the inhospitable fire of European Christendom into the fire of the Middle East where they're surrounded by people who are overt in their expressions of the determination to eliminate Jews in Israel. Leave aside the ample reasons there are to criticize the policies of the government of Israel. When you look at the state of Israel through the lens of 2,000 years, and understand, first of all, that the establishment of the state in 1948 is a reversal of St. Augustine's theology of the eternal wandering, people forever in exile, and the profound theological significance of Pope John Paul II's recognizing Israel in 1994, and then his visit to Israel in 2000 to honor Jews at home in Israel. You, you understand the possibility of this recovery from the demonizing of the other. But it is only a beginning, profound as it is. And much in the way that Jews are only beginning, yet again, in their recovery from the genocide that nearly worked in the United States and in Israel mainly, with a future that's undetermined but fraught. So Christians are only beginning in recovering from their part in what made this fate come about only beginning. It will help, it helps me, I think it will help us all to understand that we're at the beginning of something. The most important determinant of the future, however, is how we remember the past. And that's the point of this work, that's the point of the journey down that long 2,000 year old road. Also the journey through one's own life, which everybody has to do in memory, and through the contemporary challenge of a war on terrorism, which threatens to be religious, including an upsurge of, let's call it what it is, dangerous religious triumphalism in the United States. And all of that leaves us actually enlivened and determined that's what history does, and that's what an authentic look at what we're dealing with does. You look it in the eye, and you find the power to defy it. And who better than the Jewish people to remind us of that? That's the story I haven't told tonight. The great, I would say, noble story of the survival of Jewish religion, the evolution of it, the reinvention of it, the insistence on survival of the Jewish people and the determination to shape a Jewish future. And anyone who is attuned to that has to be encouraged by it, has to support it, I would say, and has to be grateful for it. I want to 
thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you. I want to thank you all very much for being with us this evening. It's my great privilege. And you won't be surprised when I conclude by saying peace.